If you brought your Bibles with you, would you open them up to the book of Ecclesiastes with me? We have been in a study of this book for the past several weeks. We have a few more to go. It's really good. The wisdom that is found here through Solomon is just amazing, life-changing, really. And I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. We have made our way to chapter 9, and I want to just read for you the first 12 verses. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, starting in verse 1. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no man knows whether love or hate awaits him. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good man, so with the sinner. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterward they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward. And even the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have part in anything that happens under the sun. Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it is now that God favors what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. All your meaningless days, for this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the grave where you are going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong. Nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no man knows when his hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net, or birds are taken in a snare, so men are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. Now let's pray together. Father in heaven, it would appear that Solomon has a rather depressing message to share with us in chapter 9. But that's only on the surface. As we read beneath that and as we look at it in the whole of your word, we find that it's exactly the opposite. Lord, this is quite an encouraging passage. I pray that that's what will come out. I pray that we'll see the hope that you have given us through your Son. And I pray, Father, that your Word will preach. And we'll listen. And we'll allow it to go deep into our hearts. And then I pray, Father, that it'll make its way to our lips. That we'll share it with other people. With those that are close to us. Those that we care about. And I pray that they'll listen. And they'll allow you to change their hearts. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. I am a fan of biographies. I have been for a long time. I don't read them as much as I would like, but oftentimes when I grab hold of one, I'll I'll just dive right into it. My favorites are those of believers, men and women that have given their lives to Christ and have done some pretty amazing things through the power of the Lord. I love to read those stories. I really do. There are a number of them that I've not yet picked up. That's a great regret. And I hope to change it. This past week, I spent some time with a man that I have never studied before at all. 
He's actually never even popped up on my screen. I've known his name just like you have, but I have known very little of his story. His name is Robert E. Lee. What I knew about him prior to this week is probably what you know about him. He was the general, the leader of the Confederate Army during the Civil War, but that's about as far as any knowledge I had of him went. Then I started studying. What I found out was he was a wonderful Christian, a deep believer in Jesus Christ, and he held firmly to his convictions. There are other great things that were said about this man. They go far beyond his exploits on the battlefield. Four years after he died in 1874, he died in 1870. In 1874, one of his very good friends would make this statement about him. Now, what you're about to hear is not just an accumulation of what historians have uncovered. This comes directly from the mouth of a good friend of his. Take a look at this. He possessed every virtue of the great commanders without their vices. He was a foe without hate, a friend without treachery, a private citizen without wrong, a neighbor without reproach, a Christian without hypocrisy, and a man without guilt. He was a Caesar without his ambition, a Frederick without his tyranny, a Napoleon without his selfishness, and a Washington without his reward. He was obedient to authority as a servant and loyal in authority as true king. He was gentle as a woman in life, modest and pure as a virgin in thought, watchful as a Roman vestal in duty, submissive to law as Socrates, and grand in battle as Achilles. That's quite a eulogy. It really is. Four years after you die, if people could say those types of things about you, could you imagine how amazing that would be? This was a good friend of his. He stood up and shared it proudly and boldly. He wanted everybody to know who his friend was. Some of the biographers will tell you that two weeks prior to his death in October of 1870, he suffered the first of a series of strokes. He was on his way home from church when the first one hit. For whatever reason, his wife was not with him. She was waiting for him at home. When he got there, the effects of the stroke had already started to set in, and then several others followed right on its heels. They called the doctor. The doctor came and examined him and gave him the long face that nobody ever wants to get from the doctor and shared with the family that the odds were that he would not survive this. This is where some of the historians differ. I want to agree with the ones who tell this part of the story. Not that I believe it really matters in history. It's just a cool part of the story. These historians would say that after the doctor had examined him and told him that he would not be long for this world, These were his words, what would in turn become his last words. He said, strike the tents, strike the tents. Now that's a terminology or a term that would be used on the battlefields by a general when they knew that they were under siege and it was time to move the troops, strike the tents, we have to move. So for those to be General Lee's last words really does make a lot of sense, strike the tents. And when you place that over the idea that he was a Christian, it really makes a lot of sense. Maybe he was referring to the battlefield, and maybe he was referring to this passage of Scripture in the New Testament. Go with me to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 1. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. 
Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us His Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident, know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Maybe, just maybe, General Lee was saying, strike this tent. It is time for me to move. I'm headed to another place. Strike the tent. Now let me set that aside for just a second and let you know that what we just read in those eight verses is very possibly the most pointed passage in all of the Bible about what happens to a believer when they die. If you're a note taker, if you write things in the margin of your Bibles, let me encourage you to write something in the margin of your Bible that will remind you that this passage speaks directly to what happens to a Christian when they die. Now, this is the way Paul would write it. In some translations of the Bible, it reads just like this. To be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. To remain in the body is to be absent from the Lord. A little bit of reverse logic that kicks in as he tries to drive the point home. To be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul would also use Philippians chapter 1 to illustrate the whole idea. Starting in verse 21, he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Now you take those two passages and put them together and you get great insight into what happens to a believer when your life is over here. We go directly into the presence of God. The Jews would teach that we live, we die, and we cease to exist. There are some sects of Christianity that would teach that when we die, we go into a form of soul sleep where we're buried in the ground, our soul stays there until the resurrection, and then we are called out of the grave, body and soul. But Paul would teach in the book of 2 Corinthians and the book of Philippians that to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. We go directly into the presence of God. If you are a note taker in your Bible, maybe you want to go to the front cover and write those passages there, and next to them, what happens to a believer when they die. So if somebody asks you questions, you'll be able to answer it right out of the Word of God. To be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. To die in this life means that we instantly start the next. Now, there are other teachings in the Bible, deep teachings of the New Testament, that will drive that point home. We don't have enough time to go into it this morning because I really want us to spend some time in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. But that's just an answer for a very popular question. Let's go back to what General Lee said. Strike the tent. It's time to move on. This life is over, and it's time for me to move. It is interesting, if that is true, that he could have that type of an approach towards death. A lot of people don't. There was a wonderful theologian named Jason Bakley who would make this statement. Death is the great adventure beside which all moon landings and space trips pale in comparison. 
That's another way of saying the same thing. Boy, death is an exciting thing for the believer. We're moving into the presence of God and there is nothing in this world that can even come close to what it will be like to stand in heaven around the throne of God and to be in His presence. Yet there are a lot of Christians that still have a a good amount of apprehension that is attached to dying. There's a number of Christians that will look at the idea of death and they'll think, I don't really want to do that. Now, I don't want to put this guy forward as a theologian, a scholar, or even a biblical teacher. Not at all. But he does have kind of an interesting point. His name's Woody Allen. Woody Allen would say, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Now, that's a pretty good way of summing up the way a lot of Christians feel about it. I'm not afraid of death, but dying doesn't hold much appeal. I don't like the process of it. And as a result of that, fear sets in, apprehension sets in, worry sets in, and we begin to just ignore the whole idea, putting it on the back burner and thinking to ourselves, well, that's something that old people deal with, and I don't even have to think about it. And then all of a sudden you realize you're old and you have to think about it, but you haven't thought about it for years, and it becomes somewhat confusing. Solomon writes in the ninth chapter of Ecclesiastes, some great things for us, things that will help us understand what death is all about, things that will take us into a a deep place with the Lord if we will just pay attention. So let's go back to that chapter. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Here's the first thing that Solomon wants us to know. Verses 1 and 2. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no man knows whether love or hate awaits him. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good man, so with the sinner. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. Solomon wants you to understand, wants me to understand, wants all of us to understand that death is the great equalizer. Unless the Lord returns, nobody in this room is going to avoid it. Unless Jesus Christ comes back, we are all facing the exact same fate. To the best of my knowledge, there are only two people in all of history that have not had to experience death. You probably know their names. The first one is a man named Enoch. The Bible teaches in Genesis chapter 5 that he walked with God and was no more. The next one is Elijah. And after that, every person has faced death. Every person has faced death. You will, I will, the wicked will, the righteous will, the sinners will, those that have lived a very pure life will, the clean will, Solomon says the unclean will. It is the great equalizer. Yet people have spent a a lot of time trying to figure out how to avoid that without recognizing that it's there for every one of us. Now there's a, a common misconception that we can avoid death. We can't. And there's a common misconception that the believer has to see it different than the the non-believer does. And there's a certain element of truth with that. Here's the way that works. In this life, we will all face a common destiny. In this life, we will all face a common destiny. But in eternity, that is not true. In eternity, there are two different options. We're going to make our way through what those options are this morning. God loves you enough that he puts those options in front of you. There is no escape from this. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, 
Verse 27. Just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. There are actually two parts to death. The first is the finishing of this life. And the second is the beginning of the next. Those are the two parts of death. We will wrap up life on this earth and we will begin life in eternity. Now for the Christian, we ought to know these things that we've already talked about that that become a source of peace for us. Yet like I said, there's still a lot of apprehension, a lot of worry that begins to well up inside of even believers in an effort to try to soothe some of that. The Bible would teach that there's actually a blessing for believers attached to death. I want you to listen to that. There is a blessing for believers attached to death. Let me show it to you. Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. There's the blessing. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, you might say, and this is a pretty good question, preacher, what's that blessing? Grief is hard. Mourning is hard. So how can Jesus say it like that? What is the blessing attached to it? I'm glad you're asking things like that. Let's go back to the Old Testament, book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 34. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. I want you to see a a little picture that we're painting right now. It starts in Matthew chapter 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Okay. Then next to that, we understand that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. We're beginning to build a triangle. And this triangle becomes complete with the next idea. There is a blessing attached to grief and mourning for believers because the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. The blessing is presence. The blessing is the ability to feel the Lord in these tough times. The blessedness that Jesus would talk about is relationship with Him. But if you want to understand how deep the blessing goes, you must understand how deep the relationship goes. Go to John chapter 11 with me, would you? Jesus had a very good friend named Lazarus. He was the brother of Mary and Martha. Jesus had actually eaten at their home. He had spent some time with them. He was very close to them. Lazarus died. When he got sick, word came to Jesus that his friend, the one whom he loves, was very sick. Jesus said, we'll stay right where we're at. And he waited four days. That was long enough for Lazarus to end up in the grave. Now watch what happens. Verse 17 of chapter 11, Gospel of John. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. 
And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, they replied, or laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Now, verse 35, shortest verse in all the Bible. Jesus wept. Now, follow the triangle all the way through. There is a blessing attached to believers when they grieve and mourn. It comes in the form of presence and closeness because the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. And the relationship finds its completeness in understanding that he actually grieves with us when we grieve. See the triangle? He mourns with us when we mourn. What you feel, God feels. What you feel, Jesus feels. That's the blessedness of it. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted by the greatest relationship ever. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted by the very presence of God himself. Blessed are those who mourn, for Jesus will never be far from them. That's the triangle. And he will actually weep with you when you weep. That blessedness is huge. It's just huge. And so as much as we understand that death is the great equalizer, even in the face of the death of loved ones, the Christian is a cut above the non-Christian because of the blessedness. The Christian has the ability to see God and feel God. And the worry and the apprehension and the fear begins to lift off of us because we understand the death of believers and we understand the depth of God's love. Yet still, in modern society, we wrestle with the whole idea. Solomon wrestled with the whole idea. He saw other people as they wrestled with the whole idea. He wrote about at least three different responses that happened as people approached the idea of death. Let's go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. The first approach is one of escape. People believe, for whatever reason, that they can get away from this idea of death. They really do. A lot of people believe that they can. Did you know that for a mere $30,000 upon your death, you can have your body frozen? And it will remain frozen until technology catches up with us and you could be revived and live on. For $30,000, you can sign contracts to make this happen. At least, as of this last week, at least 200 people in the United States of America have done this. They have their bodies cryogenically suspended in the state of Michigan or in the state of Arizona, waiting for the day, waiting for the day that technology catches up. Now, it's very curious to me that in 2011, the pioneering doctor of cryogenic suspension died. And we have to wonder somewhat about his wisdom. Now, let me tell you why. When he died, he, not, not confusingly, and, and there's probably no misunderstanding about this, he had his body frozen and then placed in cryogenic suspension between his first wife and his second wife. <laughs> now, you tell me how much wisdom there is in that right there. Should we really trust this guy? 
I heard a preacher on Moody Radio last week or the week before, I believe it was Tony Evans, that said this. He was talking to the congregation that he preaches at. He had just gotten married. His wife had died five years prior to this, and now he had just gotten remarried. He was six weeks into it or something. And he was sharing with the congregation what it was like. Talking about his first wife, he said, she is not my ex-wife. She was my first wife. This lady is my wife today, my second wife. He said, my first wife is in heaven. My second wife is here on earth. And that's just about enough room between the two of them. (laughs) So here we have this pioneering doctor in cryogenic suspension that has himself frozen and placed between these two women. In the name of all that is good and holy, what will happen if they're all thawed out at the same time and given their life back? I would not want to be in his shoes. It could get pretty ugly. And that's how people hang their hopes or where they hang their hopes. I'll have my body frozen. I'll have my head frozen. Technology will catch up. I'll be given my life back. That's this idea of escape. People try to get away from it. Death is an extremely interesting thing. It becomes, in essence, its own x-ray into the hearts and the souls of people. If you spend any time around funeral homes or churches where funerals are taking place, you can see the character and the nature of the people that are grieving. You saw it just a few minutes ago in John chapter 11. There are different responses. Did you catch that? When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, her very first response was to run out to where he was at. But if you are not careful, you will read the passage just like I did a few minutes ago. Void of all emotion. I've taught you this before, and I believe it is true. One of the best Bible study techniques that you can apply as you're going back through familiar passages is to study from the perspective or the dimension of emotion. You get back into those passages and look for the emotion that is communicated and then read the passage the right way. A few minutes ago, I read this void of emotion. Listen to it again. This is Martha as she gets there. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection in the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Did you catch the anger that was there? She stood toe-to-toe with the Lord. If you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. If you would have just done everything that we've seen you do for other people, Lazarus would still be here. Anger is one of the normal reactions that people have towards death. So Jesus says to her, now hold it. He will rise again and and still her anger is boiling. Yeah, I know he'll rise again at the resurrection, but what good does that do me? I'm still here without my brother. That's what Martha's saying. But you take a look at Mary's reaction. Verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And then Jesus begins to weep along with the sisters. Totally different reaction. Martha comes very upset. Mary comes ready to worship and ready to be comforted, ready to receive the blessing. And by the way, neither reaction is wrong. Neither reaction is wrong. If you react to God in anger, 
but you still believe who God is and you're not allowing it to destroy your relationship, then you know this, God's shoulders are big enough to deal with it. If you get upset with God because God hasn't done what you've wanted to do, by all means tell Him. We get to a place where we start to feel guilty that we can't talk to God that way. Sure you can. You have an intimate relationship with Him. If you're disappointed, if you're upset, if you don't think He did what He should have done, tell Him God's shoulders are big enough. But you remember that sometimes He'll question you. And He did. He questioned Martha. Did you catch that? He questioned Martha. Do you believe this? And she had to respond. Mary came with a different mindset. She fell at his feet. She worshiped. And Jesus just responded and he wept along with her. And she received the blessing. Different reactions. Some people come in anger. Some people come needing to be comforted. Other people come before God in the face of death with nothing more than an attitude of rebellion. Now here's an example of that. I've seen it over and over and over again. So have you. Somebody loses a loved one in a drunk driving accident and right after the funeral they throw a huge celebration at the bar. That's rebellion. That's saying, I don't care what God has done. I don't care what has happened here. We're going right to the bar. And there's a whole bunch of people that would stand up and thumb their noses at the Lord and say, it doesn't matter to me what you've done because you didn't do what I thought you should have done and I just don't care. So they go out in rebellion. Different responses. And as people try to escape, they will escape within those responses. Other people, though, Solomon would teach, have a different philosophy. Rather than trying to escape death, they just endure unto it. Oftentimes, that happens when somebody's gone through difficult situations in life. More often than not, that's a health-related thing. Something has happened in their physical life that was not expected. They hadn't planned for it. They weren't looking for it. And now, all of a sudden, it has taken place, and they just surrender. They throw up their hands and say, well, there is no hope. I'm just going to have to wait till I die. The Apostle Paul three times would plead with God to remove a thorn from his flesh. Biblical scholars have batted around forever what that thorn might be. Nobody knows for sure. What we do know is it was bad enough that the apostle would say three times, please God, please God, take this away from me. And three times, listen to this, three times, God said no. As far as we know, Paul died with that thorn in his flesh. Whatever that struggle was, He carried it all the way to the grave. There is no indication in the Bible that it was ever taken from him. But do you know that when he was in prison, still wrestling with that thorn and writing to the church in Philippi, he would write these words, Rejoice in the Lord again, or rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. He grabbed hold of an attitude that changed everything for him. Rather than surrendering his life and enduring unto death, he said, I will adopt an attitude of rejoicing. Folks, do the same thing. Don't let anything rob you of your life. Even unexpected circumstances and unexpected health circumstances. Don't let those rob you of your life. Don't just endure unto death. You stay at it until the Lord comes after you. And the way to do it is with the Paul attitude. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. You can find that in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. If you need it, if you need to memorize it, and you need to maybe put it up someplace in your house so that it can help you on a day-to-day basis, change your attitude, you do it. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. You get up in the morning and you rejoice, and you'll no longer have this attitude of enduring unto death. There are a lot of people that do that. I've met them, so have you. 
They just start kicking the ground, hanging their head, not believing that there's any hope. So they're just waiting until they die. What a sad thing. And that's what Solomon would say too. This is tragic. So then he goes into this third response in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. This one's kind of interesting. He said, rather than trying to escape death and rather than trying to endure unto death, why don't you figure out how to enjoy life until you die? And he makes it very simple. He really does. Enjoy life until you die. And I want you to see the three-part prescription that he gives for it because this is just great stuff. It is very simple, but it is also the secret to life. People have looked for it over and over and over again. They've chased it in all kinds of different ways. They've not found it. Here it is, laid out for you in print so that you can see it. This is why this guy was the wisest man to ever live. King Solomon was given this gift from God, and he used it, and he wrote it down for us. So here you go, three parts to enjoying life until you die. Verse 7 of chapter 9. Go eat your food with gladness, and drink your wine with a joyful heart. For it is now that God favors what you do. So here's what Solomon's saying. Step number one, enjoy your meals. I'm telling you, that's the diet plan I've been waiting for all my life. (laughs) Enjoy your meals. Enjoy your food. In the original languages, it would actually say things like this. Eat a lot of mashed potatoes with gravy poured over the top of it fried chicken and chicken. Just enjoy. Enjoy your food. But you know why Solomon teaches that? We talked about this a few weeks ago, so I don't want to rehash it too much. Every night he would throw these lavish feasts and he would invite people to come and join him. And all these people would come and they would eat around the king's table and there would be wonderful, sweet fellowship. Enjoy your meals because of the fellowship. Enjoy your meals because of the people that you get to eat with. Have you ever noticed that a lot of what happens in a church happens around food? Because food means fellowship. And if we're really going to find joy until the day that we die, we find it in fellowship. It's a really curious thing in what has happened in society. I was just reading statistics this last week that would say that more meals are eaten in cars than are around dinner tables and homes anymore. More meals are eaten in cars than around dinner tables in homes anymore. And it gets even more disturbing than that. The new trend is people will sit down at the table to share a meal, but everybody has electronic devices on. They're texting, they're emailing, they're checking their iPads, they're looking at Facebook, they're sending out Instagram pictures of the food that they're enjoying. They're they're doing all these different things, but they're not connecting to the people around them. Parents, listen to me. If you have young children at home, one of the greatest gifts that you can give them is dinner every night. And I don't mean nutritionally, I mean the fellowship of it. So you set a standard in your home where we eat dinner together every night and nothing turns that upside down. And we sit at our table and we turn off the phones and we turn off everything else and we engage with one another. More laughter in our house has happened around the dinner table than any other place I love it when our family gathers together every evening and we get to talk about what's happened throughout the course of the day and we get to laugh with each other and we get to tell the stories. Enjoy your food, Solomon says. 
If you're married and the kids are gone, you don't have to change this pattern. It happens all the time where people quit eating around the dinner table and now that the kids are gone, they eat sitting in front of the TV watching Fox News and and seeing what else is on. Stop it. Go back to your table and enjoy your food. Sit down with that person. If you're single and you don't have anybody to eat with, start calling some people. Go out and enjoy some meals. Share with each other and do what Solomon says. It's the first step. Enjoy your food, which means a lot of fried food and a lot of pie. Just, (laughs) sorry, again, that's in the original languages. Take a look at number two. This is the second step in this. Enjoy, verse nine, enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. I love this part. I really do. Enjoy your food and enjoy your wife. Enjoy your husband. You love them. Enjoy them. That's parts one and two of living until we die. Enjoy your food and enjoy your spouse. There are a lot of marriages today that have forgotten that. They got married. They had kids. They became partners and they quit enjoying life together. Solomon would say, whatever you do, don't let that happen. You continue to enjoy one another. You might say, it's been a long time since I've enjoyed my wife. It's been a long time since I've enjoyed my husband. We haven't shared any good moments together in a long, long time. How do we gain it back? Well, once again, I'm glad you asked because the Bible answers all our questions. Let's go to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. In my Bible, in fact, I grabbed three of the Bibles in my office Every one of those Bibles has a break in the passage in what I would refer to as one verse too late. I believe this ought to be in this passage that we're very familiar with about marriage. But for some reason, we start at verse 22 rather than verse 21, at least in the Bibles that I grabbed hold of this week. Listen to verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, if you want to figure out how to enjoy one another, there it is. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Mutual submission works in the realm of enjoying things with one another. One of my favorite things to do in in marriage counseling when I am visiting with different couples is to send them out with this assignment. I want them to have two dates. And I want each person to plan the date, execute the date, make the date happen, and then I want them to come back and tell me about it. So one date is done by the husband, one date is done by the wife, and usually I will take it a step further and I'll say, I want it to be where you're inviting them into your world. It's going to be all about the things that you enjoy. You bring your spouse into that, then come back and tell me about it. Do you know how many couples struggle with that? A huge number. They'll think, well, okay, I don't know if we can do it. Now I've gotten to a place where they'll come back in and I'll say, did you have the dates? And they'll tell me no, and I have the dates, and I'll say, then we're done here. Once you have, you come back and tell me about it. I don't want to see you until you have accomplished this because it's mutual submission and enjoying one another. So here's how it could work. I'll just illustrate it for you. I work six days a week. I'm off on Tuesdays. Tina, a couple years ago when Nick went to college, got a job. You get kids going to college. It changes your whole economic situation. So she went to work at Granite Pharmacy. Connie Sweet is the pharmacist there, and she is Tina's boss. She knows that I'm off on Tuesdays, so she made sure that Tina is off on Tuesdays. I love Connie for that. I really do. So here's the way we approach this. Sundays in our home belong to the Lord. Tuesdays belong to one another. Tuesdays belong to Tina. 
Tina would tell you that Tuesdays belong to me. And we share them. One week we may do the things that I enjoy doing. The next week we may do the things that she enjoys doing. And we just kind of move our way through that. She'll tell me what she wants to do. I'll tell her what I want to do. And we will mutually submit to one another. And we make it work. And we enjoy those days a great deal. We enjoy one another that way a great deal. We were talking about this yesterday, and she said, sometimes I think that it it leans a little heavier towards the things you like to do. And I'll say, yeah, but baby, that's just part of submission too. And and so it works, but that's okay. Mutually submit to one another. And if you need to develop that practice in your life, do it purposefully. So you start saying, hey, what do you want to do on Saturday? What do you want to do next Saturday? I'll do whatever it is that you want to do, and I will mutually submit So if I say to Tina, hey, I want to go horseback riding, and she says, well, I don't really want to go horseback riding, which she seldom ever does. She'll say, I'll go. I understand that she likes to go for about two hours, not ten. So we go and ride for a couple hours, and then we come back, and we do the things that she wants to do, and we bounce in and out of that. That's mutual submission. Folks, it's not brain surgery. It works. So Solomon says, if you want to enjoy life, enjoy your food, and enjoy your wife. Did you catch what he said next? This is really good. Figure out your purpose and do it with all your might. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Three things. Enjoy your food, enjoy your wife, and enjoy your purpose. Whatever that is. And for the believer, that is much bigger than just our occupation. For a believer, for a Christian, our purpose is how I am used in the kingdom of God. What are the gifts that God has given me and how am I using them to further the kingdom? So Solomon says, figure out your purpose, whatever it is, and you work at it with all of your might. And if we figure that out, wow, we've got it. Those three things will help us a great deal. If you don't know what your purpose is in the kingdom of God, I want you to come visit with me or talk with Deanie or talk to Matt or talk to Beth or talk to Sharon. We will help you determine what your purpose is and how you use your giftedness. But if you've gotten to a place in your life where you're thinking, I don't want to do that anymore, it's somebody else's turn, then you're messing up what Solomon was teaching. You stay at it until your life is over, and no matter what the situation is, you still have a purpose with him. Find it, and use it, and do it. And then you're not just going to endure unto death, you're going to enjoy life and thrive unto death. And that's the way it's supposed to be. It changes your whole perspective. It changes everything about us so that we can see it differently. We're running out of time, so I want to take you through the rest of what he says very quickly. Right here at the end, Solomon would say, and we didn't read these verses a few minutes ago. Actually, we started into them and then we stopped. But Solomon would sum things up this way, and please trust me on this, and I encourage you to read them on your own. He would say, you have no idea what tomorrow holds. You have no idea what's going to happen in your life. So you have to make decisions in every moment. Of every day. David would have this teaching in the book of Psalms. He would say to the Lord, Teach us to number our days aright. We learn how to number our days aright, that we can do all the things that God wants us to do. But, folks, there's an end result in all of that as well. We number our days aright because we don't know how many we have. God does. You don't know how many days you have. Your life could end today. Your life could end tomorrow. I just did a funeral this past week. Phil had gone to the, ho- or to the doctor on Tuesday, got a glowing, glowing report from the doctor. Friday morning, he did not wake up. We don't know what is going to happen. So you have to hold on to some truth in the Bible. 
The first one is this. You will number your days aright, that you may gain a heart of wisdom, the Bible says. And you'll live in each moment, getting as much from that moment as you possibly can. And you'll dedicate those moments to God with this understanding. Well, I'll just take you through Scripture on it. Let's start in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. I'm going to take you through three passages of Scripture that are truth. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that's basic truth that we have to hold on to. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Then we're going to go to the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, starting in verse 13. The apostle writes, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Yep, the wages of sin is death, but God has turned that around through the power of His Son, Jesus Christ. And for believers, there is the hope of heaven. There is the knowledge of heaven. And we believe in the resurrection. We believe that Jesus Christ will come back for those that are His. We believe that when the Apostle Paul says to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord, there's great hope in that. Paul would say, encourage each other with those words. Now let's go to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 51. Again, the Apostle Paul. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. There's truth. The resurrection is coming. The resurrection is coming for those that have given their lives to Jesus Christ because he defeated death. When Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and three days later rose from the grave, he defeated death. Not just for him, but for us as well. Therefore, there is no fear of death because Jesus took away the sting. He took away the fear, and I believe it because it's truth. Go back with me to John chapter 11. Again, this is Mary and Martha talking to Jesus after Lazarus had died. I told you we'd come back to this. Verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Now listen to this right here. Do you believe this? Jesus looked right at her and said, do you believe this? 
I'm kicking around the idea of doing a sermon series on the questions of Jesus in the spring. Maybe we're going to do that. They're all really good, and when we find them in the Bible, we need to answer them as much as the people that he directed them to need to answer them. So let me ask you this. Do you believe what Jesus just said? I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? See, that's the way we approach death. He is the resurrection and the life, and I believe it. And I've hung my hope on it. Because the time will come. By the way, if you're a note taker, maybe you want to draw a little line from that question out in the margin of your Bible and write that answer. Do you believe this? Write in the margin of your Bible. Yes, I do. And anybody that ever grabs your Bible will know it. Anybody that ever picks it up will know what you believe. Time will come when we will all strike our tents. But it will not necessarily be to the same destination. It really won't. I want to close this out by showing you a couple of other truths in the Bible. We're going to go to the book of Revelation, chapter 20, starting in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That eventuality is there for those that have not trusted Christ with their lives. Their names are not written in the book of life. Back in the Gospel of Matthew in the parable of the weeds, Jesus would actually say that that there are people even in the church, even within Christianity, that fit in that category. He would refer to them as the weeds. As he describes the harvest, he says that, that the time will come when the entire crop will be harvested. Death does that. And the weeds will be separated from the wheat. This is my paraphrase of it. And the weeds will be thrown into the fire where there will be, according to Jesus Christ, weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's hell. Now, if you go back into Revelation chapter 21, you find John writing about heaven, and he uses terminology that was very familiar to them. He writes about this beautiful palace with streets of gold and gates of pearl and beautiful jewels on the side of it. And then he says that there will be no need in heaven for a sun or a moon because Jesus will be there, the Lamb will be there, and He will provide the light that we need, and we will be in the presence of God forever. And it will be, are you ready for this, the best of God. I told you last week, I don't know about the theology of this, so please don't call this gospel. But Jesus created the earth in six days. He rested on the seventh. And I believe that. Those are literal 24-hour periods. And that happened 6,000 years ago. And since then, he's been creating heaven and earth. took six days to create the earth and 6,000 up to today to create what waits for us. That's pretty cool. Like I say, I don't know about the theology of that. It just makes sense in my mind. He's also spent 6,000 years creating hell, the place where those that will not be with him will spend eternity. There are a lot of people in the world today that will make statements like this. A loving God will never send anyone to hell. There was actually a book written called Love Wins by a fellow named Rob Bell out of the Mars Hill movement in Michigan a few years ago. Time magazine ran an article on it. In it, Rob Bell would say that a loving God would never send anyone to hell. That's horrible theology. 
That is horrible teaching. But there's an element of truth to it. Now here's the truth, and make sure you listen closely to this. God loves you enough that he will allow you to choose it. He doesn't just randomly send people to hell. God doesn't just put check marks by names and say, okay, this one's going to hell, this one's coming to heaven. That's not how it works. But he loves you enough that he'll allow you to choose it. And that's exactly what it is. The choice is ours. Do I choose eternity with God in his presence or do I choose eternity apart from him in hell? Because God's going to let you go either way. Now, if you choose the first one, eternity with him, know this, he's done all the heavy lifting. He's done all the hard work. All you have to do is give your life to him through his son, Jesus Christ. If you choose hell, all you have to do is continue living for yourself. That's it. That's it. And the Lord loves you enough to allow you to choose. Interesting teaching. That's part of what causes the fear and the apprehension that Solomon even saw. That's what causes people to worry and get scared as they think about death. But blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And God is near to the brokenhearted. And he draws us near to him. There is no fear attached to it. Woody Allen may be right. I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. The process can be a problem, but the end result is the presence of the Lord for those that believe in him. Solomon wraps it all up by saying, you have no idea what tomorrow holds, none whatsoever. So I want to speak to those of you that have never made a decision for Jesus Christ, and I'm going to say it just as pointedly as I can. You have no idea if tomorrow will even be there for you. None whatsoever. You could go to bed tonight and not wake up. You could get in your car and leave here and end up in an accident, and that's the end of your life. Then it's too late. It is just too late. You have to make that decision before you die. There is no having other people pray you out of hell. There is no changing God's mind. It's a decision that has to be made here. If you've not done it, do it. And do it quickly, because you don't know what tomorrow holds.